As Nick alluded to in his prayer, we have entered, I guess, into the official Christmas season. And uh, that should be exciting, not just because of the presents being given at the end of the month, but because it's the celebration that we as Christians enjoy every single day of the year. We celebrate the incarnation of God the Son every day. And we celebrate what he did when he came here in our behalf. And we want to keep our minds, I think, focused on that during this season in particular. And I'm sure that, you know, as, as Christians, you know that this season affords us an unusual opportunity. It, whether the, the nation or the world itself likes it or not, or tries to redefine what this season is about, for us, Christmas time still opens the door of the gospel for us. And as Christians, we should use this time of year, I think, wisely. We should use this time of year to help point others around us to our very hope, our daily hope as Christians. And so today what I want to do is I want to remind you of where to take people to offer them that hope at Christmas time, but also in any time in which you have an opportunity. And the place that I want to take you and take them to is the gospel. It's the gospel. And I say that because the gospel is the foundation of all true hope for both sinners and for saints. And I want us to think about why we need not just to take others to the gospel, but why we as Christians need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, not just at Christmas, but daily, every single day, why we need the gospel every day. And to help us think about that, I want to... uh, share with you some wise words from Jerry Bridges. He offers up some really excellent reasons why we should preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And Mr. Bridges puts it this way. The gospel is not only the most important message in all of history. It is the only essential message in all of history. Yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. Because they do not fully understand the riches and glory of the gospel, they cannot preach it to themselves and live by it in their daily lives. I think Jerry's right. Saints, in this quote, what he's basically saying is this, we must never move past the gospel. Instead, we should rejoice in it daily and reflect on it daily as believers to be equipped to take this hope to the lost. We should be living and rejoicing in it daily as believers. And it's important for us to do that because the gospel, we need to understand this, and and maybe this is a remedial lesson today, but I think it's important to say this. The gospel not only leads us to salvation, it also secures, sanctifies, and comforts us as Christians. And we need the gospel, not just that conversion But all the way to glorification in heaven, we are going to sing of the gospel. We're going to be centered around the cross of Christ, rejoicing in what he did on our behalf, praising him for eternity. So I believe that it's important for us to grasp this. And I believe the Bible reveals something important about the gospel other than the bare facts of the message of the gospel. It does give us that, certainly. But the Bible reveals to us that the gospel of God's grace is multifaceted. It's multifaceted. And by that, I mean the gospel has the multifaceted power of God within it to regenerate, to sanctify, to comfort, and to sustain us in all of life and throughout all of eternity. 
It's multifaceted. It's not just a a one-stop shop at the beginning of your life in Christ and you forget about it and move past it. No, you continually come back here. It regenerated you. It's what sanctifies you. It's what comforts you. It's what sustains you in life. And saints, the, the multifaceted power of the gospel, if you really start to think through it, you'll find that it's greater than anything you could have ever imagined. It's deeper than you could ever imagine. And I believe that God wants us to rest in that. I think he wants us to rejoice in that, especially as we proclaim that. We should be able to proclaim the gospel to others with absolute confidence that it is not just something that happened in our past. It's not just our past testimony. It's our present testimony. I am what I am only by the grace of God in Christ. That's why I stand forgiven. That's why I am accepted and loved by God the Father. God has done a great work in giving us his good news in Jesus Christ. It's transforming us now and throughout eternity. And that is the hope for the sinner that we encounter at Christmas time. They need to hear this. They need to see you rejoicing in it, reveling in the glory of the cross and what Christ accomplished on our behalf. But in order for us to actually do that, in order for us to actually rejoice and rest in the gospel message, we need to know something about the message. It's not just a message. It's not just another message that we offer as a religious group. It is the message. It is the message from God that actually changes people. It is something that actually regenerates the soul. It transforms the unbeliever into a new creation. And so we need to think about the expansive power of the gospel when we talk about the message of the gospel. It's what changes our eternal destiny. Think about that. That message proclaimed and received by the Spirit's work in us has changed our eternal destiny. And in light of that, it should then, therefore, reorient our present realities, the way we live today. Like I said, the gospel of Christ is not just a message. It's a divinely empowered message from God himself. It not only saves us, but it sanctifies us. It makes us set apart unto God as holy vessels on earth. It also comforts us. When life falls apart around us, we have a security in Christ, in the gospel. We know that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what happens around us, we are comforted by the gospel. I want you to hear how another man put it more eloquent than me. It's J.I. Packer. Some of you know who he is. He's a theologian. He's now in glory. But here's how uh, J.I. Packer defined the gospel message and its supernatural power. This is lengthy, so just listen. The gospel is a message about God. It tells us who he is, what his character is, what his standards are, and what he requires of us. It tells us that we owe our very existence to him. It is here with the assertion of man's complete and constant dependence on his creator that the Christian story starts. Secondly, the gospel is a message about Christ. It tells us who the Messiah is and what he accomplished. Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. The Lamb of God who died for sinners rose from the dead for our justification. Therefore, the gospel is a message about Jesus, the perfect and all-sufficient Savior of sinners. Thirdly, the gospel is a message about sin. It tells us how we have fallen short of God's standard, how we have become guilty, filthy, 
and helpless in sin and now stand under the wrath of God. It shows us ourselves as God sees us and teaches us to think of ourselves as God thinks of us. Not until we have learned our need to get right with God and our inability to do so by any effort of our own can we come to know the Christ who saves from sin. And then Packer concludes by saying this, The gospel is a summons to faith and repentance. All who hear the gospel are summoned by God to repent and believe. Faith or belief is essentially the casting and resting of oneself and one's confidence on the promises of mercy which Christ has given to sinners and on the Christ who gave those promises. Equally, repentance is more than just sorrow for the past. Repentance is a change of mind and heart, a new life of denying self and serving the Savior as king in self's place. So says J.I. Packer, and I say amen. I say amen because Packer's words really just the long way of saying it, but simply are saying what Paul says in Romans 1.16. Let's look at that just real quickly. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about the encompassing power of the gospel, the multifaceted power of the gospel. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to to the Greek. It is the dunamis of God, he says here. Church, the gospel is a message. Understand what he's saying here when when Paul writes this and what really I think J.I. Packer is alluding to. The gospel is a message that has within it the very dunamis of God Almighty. Now think about that if you don't know what that means. Just think through what I'm going to say. This means that the gospel has the power of God within it, meaning It has the inherent power of God's very nature within it. The gospel has God's divine energy within it, and that means that the gospel has the power to create and sustain life. It has the power to reconcile and restore sinners. The gospel has the power to satisfy and sanctify our souls as believers. Listen to how John Piper puts it when he comments on Romans 1.16. Piper writes, you don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because it doesn't just make converts. It saves those converts utterly. It brings them to final safety and ever-increasing joy in the presence of a glorious and holy God forever. That is what makes us bold with the gospel. Not that it can make converts. Any religion can do that. But the gospel is the only truth in the world that can really save people forever and bring them to everlasting joy with God. Amen, Piper. Amen. This is what I'm trying to convey to you this morning. The gospel that Paul proclaimed that he was not ashamed of there in Romans 1.16, it has power beyond your imagination. It's the power to create and then sustain life. To reconcile and restore sinners. To satisfy and sanctify saints. This goes a long ways in your worship to magnifying Christ when you actually think about this. Church, Romans 1.16 is telling us that the gospel has God's sovereign, omnipotent power within it to transform not just sinners, but also believers. And God's power in the gospel will never fail to accomplish God's intended purposes. No matter what our circumstances look like, 
No matter what we're going through, we have confidence in the power of the gospel. God has given it to us for a specific reason, to magnify Jesus through our lives being transformed into his image. And he'll sustain us through that process. And he'll comfort us when things around us seem to fall apart. You know, at Christmas time, we do look forward to it for the most part. But listen, I know people who don't. They've lost a loved one. It's hard to embrace the Christmas celebration at times like that. They've went through a divorce. Their child has cancer. There's no joy in those moments. But in Christ, in the gospel, there can be sustaining joy even in the hardest of times. And I think we see an example of that. That's what I want to focus on this morning. I believe that Acts 16 reveals this to us. I believe Acts 16 reveals to us that the gospel has the power to give life to the dead, freedom to the slave, rest to the weary, strength to the weak, and joy to the sorrowful. The gospel's power is all-encompassing, beyond measure. When I, when I read 116 and then I read Acts 16, I am so grateful to God for these truths that I find here because I need the reminders I find in these texts. I don't know about you, but I need these reminders, not just occasionally, but daily. I need, I need the hope of the gospel constantly. I need it when I feel spiritually numb. I need it when I feel overwhelmed by temptation and doubt. Like, God, why did you let this happen? I was doing what you called me to do, but yet everything is coming unraveled. Are, are you not there? But the gospel reminds me, oh, yes, son, I'm there. I was there taking your place. My son took your place at the cross. The gospel reminds me that when I grow weary in the battle with my flesh, that God has overcome my flesh in Christ. That's why I think Romans 1.16 and Acts 16 are important places to look at together this morning. We'll begin here. I'm going to just basically walk through this with you. I'm not going to read the entirety of this because we're going to look at Acts 16 really all the way from verse 11 down to the 33rd verse. But we're going to begin here just with the first few verses in verses 11 to 15 because, first of all, what we see here revealed is the gospel's power to open closed hearts, open the heart of the dead sinner. Give life. Look at these verses, 11 to 15. Now, what's going on here, just for context, we've got Paul and Silas entering into their missionary journey to Philippi. And the interesting part of this story is when you read Philippians, you see the, the, the full fruit of it. But the interesting part of this, when I, when I read through this whole section, I find something really intriguing and encouraging. The first few members of the Philippian church weren't like the most prestigious people in the world. Okay, You'll see that as we go through this. You've got a convert from Judaism who happens to be a woman. Then you have a delivered demon-possessed girl. And then you have an ex-Roman soldier, right, a jailer. So these are not like the most prestigious people, but that's who God chooses, those who are needy. And the gospel can transform every single one of them. But look at the verse with me, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there were a place. There was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. 
The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. First of all, when you read this passage, verse 14 is the key verse. Okay, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She had obviously you know, Jewish background. She understood Jewish doctrine, if you will, at the time. But she hadn't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. One thing we know about Paul is he said, I preach Christ and him crucified. So I'm absolutely confident I know what he preached to her here. He preached the gospel to her. That's what the Lord used to open her heart. Her heart was closed to the gospel. So the gospel teaches us something here through this example. We see the power of it to actually open the dead sinner's eyes, their heart, to understand the good news. So that tells us that the gospel can remove the blinders of self-righteousness. We see that in here in a religious setting. It can remove the blinders of sin as well. And it can open the sinner's eyes to see who Jesus truly is and to understand what his loving sacrifice accomplished at the cross. That's what is revealed in the gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation for this woman. And we see this and hear this constantly throughout the New Testament. We hear this gospel truth actually confirmed really clearly that the Lord's power through the gospel opens the dead sinner's heart, gives them a new heart. Look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes here, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. Crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But, but to those who are called the elect, those that God had set out before the foundation of the world, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When God's word is proclaimed and heard savingly, it's because God has done the work. God works through his word to open the blind eyes of sinners, to grant them ears to hear, a new heart to receive the truth. This is all of God, but this shows the miraculous power of the gospel. Listen, you can't argue someone into the kingdom. You can't use apologetics to basically save someone. All you can do is point out the flaws in their thinking so that they have to come to the conclusion, I don't know what to do. And then you tell them the gospel. You point them to Jesus. In the gospel, there is power to give life to the dead. We see that happen to Lydia here. She's a prime example of this. This is a sovereign act of God. He works through the word and he opened her eyes to who Christ is. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. Secondly, in Acts, go back in Acts 16, verses 16 to 18. 
Here we see that the gospel sets spiritual captives free. And I say amen to that because I was one. I was spiritually captivated by my sin. But God set me free by God's grace alone through Christ. Verses 16 to 18. Paul continues here. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Just a side note. We derive the English word python from that word divination there. It's actually a Greek term, pithos. And it was the serpent that guarded the temple where the goddess of Delphi spoke mystical oracles. So she had a spirit of pithos, divination, and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us. This is Luke actually writing, crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The proper translation of that last phrase is she proclaimed a way of salvation. That's what they were doing. She said they're proclaiming a way of salvation, not the only way. She kept doing this for many days. I love verse 18. (laughs) Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. There's some power. There's some power being displayed here. Aren't you aren't you glad today? If you're a believer, you should be very glad today that the gospel can destroy the power of sin and set the captive free. Aren't you aren't you glad that the power of the gospel can set man's heart free and set us free to to live in peace with God. This girl had no peace. She was a slave, not just physically, but spiritually to this spirit. But God granted her freedom in the gospel, even in the gospel application. Notice that I really love this in verse 18. Paul, Paul does not rebuke her. He directs his rebuke at what is driving her. He has compassion for her. That's gospel love. He's concerned about her. It reminds me of when Jesus and his disciples encounter the man who was born blind from, you know, from birth. He was born blind and, and they come up to him and they, they say, hey, Jesus, so who sinned? His mom or dad or, or is it him that sinned that caused this to happen? See, all they saw was a theological problem. Jesus saw a person. He addressed the man's need and said, it was for my glory that this happened. And he healed the man. Out of compassion. The gospel's power can do that. The gospel power can set free the captive. It can heal those who are broken by sin. It's promised to do that. Jesus said, I am the fulfillment. I am the good news. And that's what I've came to do is to set the captives free. He said that in Luke 4. In Luke 4, 18 to 21. He said that by quoting the prophet and saying those words that I'm quoting, they apply to me. In Luke 4, 18 to 21, he applies these words from the prophet to himself. Well, let me begin in verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's making it very personal here. I can even hear Jesus saying it like this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and re- the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace, his favor, his jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is the fulfillment of God's promised deliverance. That he would set free those who are entrapped by sin. Those who are captivated by sin and Satan. The power of Christ in the gospel can do that. Nothing else can. Nothing can come close. Religion can only continue to perpetuate struggles and fears and doubts and struggles with ongoing battles with sin that lead to no hope. But Christ can set us free. In his victory, we are free. We have no condemnation now in Christ. Next, back in Acts 16, 19 to 26. Here we can see that the gospel grants peace and joy even in the midst of pain and sorrow. Boy, I don't know about you, but that's good news. Because as a Christian, just because you're born again doesn't mean that pain and sorrow disappears. Frankly, you're probably more sensitive to it. You know the cause of it down deep. You know that sin is at root here and that it's going to be this way in this life until the end, until Christ comes. We're going to encounter these kinds of things. But here we're going to see that the gospel can grant us peace and joy even in the midst of pain. We see that happen with Paul and Silas here in 19 to 26. As a result of what Paul did in rebuking this spirit that came out of her, it says in verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized upon Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them into the, to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Notice this crowd mentality that gathers up here. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them confined or safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. This is not... This is not what you expect. This is not what you're looking forward to here. This is not what you think would happen to the faithful man of God here in this case. But then it says about verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Understand the time frame here is about 12 hours. They've been in there about 12 hours in this inner prison. They were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They're all unfastened. This is interesting. What we see in this, I think, saints, is uh, the sustaining power of God's gospel in the midst of suffering for the gospel. What's happening here? Well, they're doing a righteous work. They're they're faithfully reaching out to this area with the gospel, but they have opposition. Spiritual opposition comes against them. And that opposition leads to suffering, serious suffering. The, the crowd, and understand this, I think the crowd also consists of the guy who kept them safely. I think the jailer was involved in this too because he had a certain amount of authority he had to exercise. So the, the jailer was probably there in this beating process as well. And understand this, the jailer... Philippi, it's a Roman colony, ex-Roman soldiers, old Roman soldiers went there to retire. Okay, that's kind of what it's like. 
and they gave them jobs. And it's likely that this jailer was a retired soldier, so he knew how to inflict injury. He knew what would really hurt. But what do we see happening as, happening as a result of the gospel in the heart of Paul and Silas? We see praise, and we even see evangelism, even amidst the pain. Look at, look at this verse here, verse 25. They were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. It's interesting. The word listening there is actually a medical term. It means to lean the ear against. They weren't just overhearing Paul and Silas singing praises and glorifying God. They were leaning in to listen intently. Why? These men were in the midst of pain, but they're singing praise. Because they know that the God who put them there also put them there for a purpose. Our evangelistic ministry just got bigger. These guys are... Now captive, they can't leave. They can't run away from us. The inner prison was in the jailer's home, and it, it sort of his home was attached to it, but the inner prison was more like a dungeon in the center of the building. And what happened was, just by God's providential love and grace, he puts these two guys in the middle of the amphitheater so that when they sing, their voices go everywhere. So all the prisoners heard this. All of them, they, they hear them praising God. And in their praises, here's what they're declaring. They're declaring that our God reigns even in the midst of suffering. He, he reigns over our suffering. And he's using our suffering even for our good and the good of those that are imprisoned with us. And even those who imprison us. They had something that was really important in the midst of their pain. The gospel brought them peace. Peace in the middle of all this pain. We see another example of a man who received God's gospel peace in the midst of great suffering in the book of Acts, and it's in Acts 7. Go back a few chapters. I'm not reading the entirety of this, but I will tell you about it as we get to the verses I want to look at. In Acts 7, 54 to 59, we'll see here a great testimony of gospel peace in the midst of pain. What's going on here, we have a whole chapter ahead of this where Stephen has been arrested for proclaiming the gospel. And one of the men there, the one who has a status of being in charge, Saul, who became the apostle Paul, he's there holding the coats of those who are engaged in this. But Stephen beautifully preaches Christ from the Old Testament all the way through the Old Testament up to the point that we're going to read here this morning. And what's amazing to me is he knows he's about to die. Listen, I think most of us understand this. When you were stoned in those days, generally you're stoned and buried at the same time. They stoned you with rocks about the size of your head. They intended to kill you, cover you, and leave you. So Stephen knew what was coming. But look at the gospel peace that overcame him in the midst of this suffering. Verse 54, when they heard Stephen's sermon, okay, the sermon that pointed to Christ and pointed to their guilt, they heard a gospel message from the Old Testament. When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. There's an example 
of gospel peace in the midst of pain. There's also an example of God working through suffering sovereignly for the sake of the good of others who were there witnessing this. This was yet another testimony to Saul that the power of the gospel is able to grant you something that religion could never grant you. He saw the gospel proclaimed in the way in which Stephen died. He saw the love of Jesus overcome him in the midst of the suffering. Stephen sounds so much like Jesus in this that it was undeniable, even to Saul. I love verses 55 and 56 because they're very unique, unique in the New Testament. You see something going on here that you don't see anywhere else. You see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The only time we see Jesus standing from his seated position of authority is when his people are suffering. He was engaged. I will be with you to the end of the age. That promise is fulfilled here. He was with Stephen in the midst of his suffering, and that gave him peace. Fourthly, back in Acts 16, Acts 16, verses 27 to 28, here we see that the gospel can constrain us to sacrifice our lives on behalf of others. The gospel gives us peace. The gospel also constrains us. So we see sanctifying work going on here. It can constrain us to sacrifice our lives for others. We see that happen in verses 27 and 28. It says this, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself or we are all here. That has got to be gospel-driven because I'm not sure I could do that in my flesh, okay? I mean, the doors come swinging open. I'm probably going to leave and let the jailer do what he wants to do. I mean, I'm not, you know, he's not my friend, but, you know, that's my flesh. Paul operated by the Spirit's direction here. The gospel transformed him. It caused him to be willing to sacrifice his own life on behalf of the jailer. That's gospel power. Here we see the gospel cultivate extraordinary compassion for your enemies and for those who are hopeless. Obviously, the man's hopeless. He's the jailer. If he loses one inmate, he forfeits his life. He would rather kill himself than let them put him to death and feel the shame of that. He would rather die by his own hand than be shamed by Rome. And Paul understood this. Paul Paul knew that this jailbreak would, would cost the jailer his life. But it was the love of Christ that constrained Paul and caused him to stay put and risk his life on behalf of the jailer. When we often read this passage earlier and we see that this great earthquake came and broke the shackles and opened the doors, we think that's a great miracle. It's nothing, though, compared to this miracle. This is the greater miracle in the story. The breaking of the prison and the chains and all that, that doesn't mean anything in comparison to what's going on here. Paul is willing to forfeit his life for the sake of his enemy. Who does that sound like? Jesus. That's gospel compassion. That's gospel sacrificial love that we see being displayed in this. This gospel is multifaceted, saints. It doesn't just get you in the kingdom It conforms you and changes you and transforms you more and more to the image of God's Son. All the way to the end until glorification. We're made to be like Him in perfection. That is the hope of the gospel. That it will do what our flesh can never do. We see multiple testimonies of this, not just in Paul's life. 
but throughout church history. People willing to sacrifice themselves on behalf of others, especially even their enemies. That's what Jesus did for us. When we were at war with God, God sent his son. When we were at our worst, he sent his son to die, not for good people, but for his enemies. That is God's power in the gospel, to show compassion to us and then in turn change us to magnify Christ. Fifthly, there in Acts 16, 29 to 32, there's one more after this, all right, so hang on. Fifthly, though, here in 29 to 32, we see the gospel gives hope to the hopeless. This jailer is hopeless at this stage. Look what it says. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus And you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. The gospel gave hope to this hopeless jailer. Oftentimes we read this text and we read about this man trembling with fear, falling down before Paul and Silas. And we we think about the fear he felt in his flesh. He's, He's trembling because of the possibility of what would happen to his life. I don't know that that's all that's going on here. I think he's trembling because he is seeing the power of the gospel at work. He has heard the testimony of Lydia being converted to Christianity. He had seen and maybe possibly been a part of watching what happened with the demon-possessed girl being set free. And now he has witnessed the power of God's gospel at work through his people praising him, setting these captives free. And now he is trembling because he needs to have his heart set free. I think that's what's going on aside from this earthly perspective of his own flesh being fearful. He's like, what must I do to be saved? I don't think he's simply saying, what must I do not to get in trouble with Rome? What must I do to have my soul renewed, to be redeemed? And Paul tells him, believe upon the Lord Jesus. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They elaborated on that from the scriptures. They give him hope from the word. That's what the gospel does. The gospel grants hope to those who are suffering, those who are fearful, those who are under sin's domination. And the source of that hope really is grounded in this this gospel truth that we see back in Romans 5. Go there again with me. Romans 5. This is where this hope is grounded It's not grounded in Paul. It's not grounded in the jailer's activity, his his own voice of crying out. It's grounded in what God has promised to do through the gospel. And only God can do through the gospel that is proclaimed. Verses 6 and 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. This is not how God operates. Verse 8. That God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is gospel hope. That is good news for the lost. Good news for those who are suffering, those who are under sin's domination, those who are hopeless. This is good news. God has done something. God has acted. None of my actions can bring me into God's presence. None of my actions can erase my sin debt. But God has stepped in. He has intervened. He has sent forth his son, and his son came willingly to take our place. 
That good news, that good news transformed the jailer. But not just in that moment. I think it transformed the jailer's life from that moment on. He never moved past the gospel. You know, when he thought about his own failures, his, his own sins that he had committed in the past, and he was feeling doubts about his relationship with God, he's still coming back to this. But God, who is rich in mercy, he sent his son to die for me. I've been redeemed. I've been set free. I have hope. I have security. I have comfort because God has loved me and sent his son for me. And as Paul said in Galatians, the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who did that for me. Lastly, in Acts 16, verse 33, here we see the gospel that transforms sinners. We see how it changed him, not just Mentally, it didn't change the jailer's just mindset. It changed his actions. It transforms sinners. Look at verse 33. After they preached to him, verse 32, after they, they elaborated on what it means to believe upon the Lord Jesus, he took them the same hour of night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. They, they all, by the way, all heard the word proclaimed. They had ability to understand that word. They heard the word proclaimed, but then in return, here's what we see. We see the gospel had, had the power then to transform, to transform this, this jailer. And what did it do to him? It turned him in a servant, into a servant of Christ. It, it, it transformed one of Paul and Silas's abusers into the very man now who is mending their wounds that he had inflicted upon them. What a transformation. What a difference. The gospel makes all the difference now and for eternity. And we see it manifested in this man's behavior being changed. And we see it in Paul's testimony as well, don't we? Paul went around persecuting the church before he was born again as Saul, right? And, and then what's he do with the rest of his life after conversion? He goes around mending those who he hurt, caring for their needs, giving them spiritual truth to sustain them in the midst of suffering. The gospel transforms. It truly, completely and wholly transforms sinners. So here's my hope today. This is a little different kind of message for me, but it's, this is what is on my heart and my mind as I thought about this Sunday coming up right here, right now. My hope today is that we are once again amazed and encouraged by the multifaceted power of the gospel that we see here in Acts 16 and Romans 1.16. And the reason I say that is I think that Paul was always encouraged and amazed by it. And therefore, we should also be like Paul in that sense. I mean, think about this. We know that Paul, I, I am 100% confident that Paul was daily amazed and encouraged by the power of the gospel. Because here's what I know about Paul from his writings. The gospel was central to all that Paul did in ministry, his practical life. It was central to all of his theology, his doctrine. The gospel was at the core of it all. He never strayed past the gospel, beyond the gospel. It was the hub in which everything else flowed from. It was central to him. Here's, here's what we know, and I was going to do this, but we don't have the time. I wanted to go through all, at least three or four of his first epistles and just tell you how that happened. But here's what I could tell you. When you read the epistles that Paul wrote, you learn that he, he gives many types of instructions for Christians there. All types, from the parenting helps to 
rebukes to corrections to instructions, all these different things in all his epistles. But all his teaching and all his actions that we see in his ministry, they always sprang out of and were driven by the gospel of Christ. He never had to go past that. That's what drove it all. That was at the core of it. That's what we see taking place even in this time here in Acts 16 as he's going through persecution for the gospel. We see the gospel manifesting itself through his actions and through his words, his theology here. The gospel was central to him. It amazed him. It encouraged him. I believe God gave us that gospel so that it would do the same for us. This is not just a historic oddity that it affected Paul this way. It should affect us this way as well. In, in Acts 16, let me give you a quick summary of this. In Acts 16, here's what we see. We see that Paul was led by the gospel's loving command to reach out to Lydia with hope. He offered her hope in the gospel. And that Paul was encouraged by the gospel's power then to persevere even when he was persecuted for that message. And then Paul rejoiced over the the gospel's comfort as he suffered for the sake of others. He was constrained by gospel love to sacrifice his freedom in order to help others, to set them free from sin, slavery, and future destruction. I think he did all of that, saints, because the gospel, in Paul's mind, it wasn't something something you gain once and then you set aside and you figure out all the really detailed, important theological stuff later. That's not the way it worked in his mind at all. Quite the opposite. The gospel was not, for Paul, a place that he went one time to purchase a ticket to heaven. That's, and that's many, many, many Baptist people that I know view it that way. And that should be corrected. The gospel isn't a place you go to punch your ticket to get to heaven one time and then you set it aside. For Paul, the gospel was his daily retreat because it was his place of present and eternal rest. And it was that way because it revealed his Savior. In the gospel, we see Jesus magnified in his greatness. It revealed Jesus' eternal love, his eternal power, and his eternal promises to his people. That was Paul's resting place, always, present and future. And I believe Paul rested there in the shelter of this gospel daily. And I believe he did that in a way that is manifest throughout the New Testament so that we could follow his example. We are called on by God to join Paul in the shelter of the Most High in the gospel and do it daily. And we should do that because... We need spiritual rest daily, do we not? I need spiritual rest daily. I need the Holy Spirit to equip me, wash me, renew my mind, help me daily. And the gospel is where he directs me to do that. In the gospel, we find spiritual rest so we won't grow weary in this dark and dangerous world that we live in. We need spiritual rest. That's not all we need. We need healing when we as Christians are suffering. And in the gospel, we find that. When you feel alone, when you feel like you're the only one who's struggling with this, you look back at the gospel and you say, but God, you promised in Christ to sustain me, to change me, to make me conform to his image, to change me, to be like him, even in the midst of this pain. Beyond all that, we need to rest in the shelter of the gospel so that we can find the strength to serve those who we love. See, the gospel is not about you. It's about Christ being magnified. By taking that message and that truth and sharing it with others. We need to rest in this shelter so we can 
have the strength to serve those who we love that are now presently suffering. And more importantly, to give hope to those who are lost in sin. We need to rest in this gospel to tell them there's hope. The gospel can break stony hearts and give them a heart of flesh and change them and bring them into eternal joy in God's presence. But that gospel has to be something that we own, we rest in, we live in, we rejoice in daily. My prayer this morning is that today would be a reminder to do that. That today you'd be reminded to joyfully dwell on the gospel daily. I think we should do it as, I'll give you another quote here, as John Piper puts it. Because the gospel is the power that gives us victory over temptation, despair, doubt, pride, and lust. The gospel alone can triumph over every obstacle in life and bring us to eternal joy. So whatever it costs, stand in it, hold it fast, believe on it, feed on it, savor it, count it more precious than silver or gold. Amen. We need to dig deeper into the gospel in order to feast on what God has promised us in Christ so that we can share it with the world around us. We need to remember and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves as well as to others. We need to rejoice in that gospel we proclaim. We need to do that so that we can share our hope in Christ with joy to both weary saints and lost sinners because they all have the same need. We all have the same need. We have need of the multifaceted power of the gospel because in God's gospel, there is power in it to sanctify the struggling saint and redeem the hopeless sinner for eternity. So let's praise God for his gospel. Heavenly Father, today we humbly amazed by your grace come to you through Christ our Savior. We are so thankful to have this privilege by your Holy Spirit's power to cry out to you and that you'll hear us when we cry. We are thankful that your gospel not only saves but comforts, comforts the weak Christian, the struggling believer, the doubtful man or woman here today. But it gives us such hope because we know that Christ has accomplished and overcame what we could never accomplish or overcome. He has done it for us, and we give you thanks for the goodness of your delivering grace in Christ and this message that we now want to share with those around us. We pray that you would be magnified as we do it and that you would use the words of the gospel that we proclaim to others to give them eternal joy in your presence. I pray that you would break the stony hearts of anyone here today who have not yet bowed a knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray that you would fill the saint, the weary saint, with joy and comfort this day. That you would fill those who are rejoicing in your grace daily with, with a hope that will move them into action to reach others to celebrate what you've accomplished in Christ. And I thank you for all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.